Part three, chapter sixteen of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part three, chapter sixteen. These events had for a moment distracted my mind, but as soon as I was alone I felt the ever-increasing burden of my duty towards Markovitch. The sensation was absolutely dreamlike in its insistence on the one hand that I should take some kind of action, and its preventing me on the other from taking any action at all. I felt the strange inertia of the spectator in the nightmare, who sees the house tumbling about his head and cannot move. Besides, what action could I take? I couldn't stand over Markovitch, forbid him to stir from the flat, or imprison Semyonov in his room, or warn the police. Besides, there were now no police. Moreover, Vera and Bowen and the others were surely capable of watching Markovitch. Nevertheless, something in my heart insisted that it was I who was to figure in this, through the dusk of the streets, in the pale ghostly shadows that prelude the coming of the white knights, I seemed to see three pursuing figures, Semyonov, Markovitch, and myself. I was pursuing, and yet held. I went back to my flat, but all that night I could not sleep. Already the first music of the May-day processions could be heard distant trumpets and drums before i sank into uneasy bewildered slumber i dreamt then dreams so fantastic and irresolute that i cannot now disentangle them i remember that i was standing beside the banks of the neva the river was rising flinging on its course in the great tempestuous way that it always has during the first days of its release from the ice the sky grew darker the water rose I sought refuge in the top gallery of a church with light green domes, and from here I watched the flood, first as it covered the quays, tumbled in cascades of glittering water over the high parapet, trickling in little lines and pools, then rising into sheeted levels, then billowing in waves against the walls of the house, flooding the doors and the windows, until so far as the eye could reach there were only high towers remaining above its grasp i do not know what happened to my security and saw at length the waters stretch from sky to sky one dark tossing ocean the sun rose a dead yellow slowly the waters sank again islands appeared stretches of mud and waste heaving their huge bodies out of the ocean vast monsters crawled through the mud scaled and horned lying like logs beneath the dead sun the waters sank forests rose the sun sank and there was black night then a faint dawn and in the early light of a lovely morning a man appeared standing on the beach shading his eyes gazing out to sea I fancied that in that strong-bearded figure I recognized my peasant, who had seemed to haunt my steps so often. Gravely he looked round him, then turned back into the forest. Was my dream thus? Frankly I do not know, too neat an allegory to be true, perhaps, and yet there was something of this in it. I know that I saw Boris, and the rat, and Vera, 
and Semyonov and Markovitch, appearing, vanishing, reappearing, and that I was strongly conscious that the submerged and ruined world did not touch them, and was only a background to their own individual activities. I know that Markovitch seemed to come to me again and cry, Be patient, be patient, have faith, be faithful. I know that I woke struggling to keep him with me, crying out that he was not to leave me, that that way was danger. I woke to find my room flooded with sunshine, and my old woman looking at me with disapproval. "'Wake up, Baron,' she was saying. "'It's three o'clock.' Three o'clock,' I muttered, trying to pull myself together. Three in the afternoon. I have some tea for you.' When I realized the time, I had the sensation of the wildest panic. I jumped from my bed, pushing the old woman out of the room. I had betrayed my trust. I had betrayed my trust. I felt assured that some awful catastrophe had occurred, something that I might have prevented. When I was dressed, disregarding my housekeeper's cries, I rushed out into the street. At my end of the Ekaterinskovsky Canal, I was stopped by great throngs of men and women, returning homewards from the procession. They were marching, most of them, in ordered lines across the street, arm in arm, singing the Marseillaise. Very different from the procession a few weeks before, that had been dumb, cowed, bewildered. This was the movement of a people conscious of their freedom, sure of themselves, disdaining the world. Everywhere bands were playing, banners were glittering, and from the very heart of the soil, as it seemed, the Marseillaise was rising. Although the sun only shone at brief intervals, there was a sense of spring warmth in the air. For some time I could not cross the street. Then I broke through and almost ran down the deserted stretch of the canal. I arrived almost breathless at the door in the English prospect, there I found Sasha watching the people and listening to the distant bands. Sasha, I cried, is Alexey Petrovitch at home? No, Berin, she answered, looking at me in some surprise. He went out about a quarter of an hour ago. And Nicholas Markovitch? He went out just now. Did he tell you where he was going? No, Berin, but I heard Alexey Petrovitch tell him, an hour back, that he was going to Katerinov. I did not listen to more. I turned and went. Katerinov was a park, ten minutes distant from my island. It was so called because there was there the wooden palace of Catherine the Great. She had once made it her place of summer residence, but it was now given over to the people, and was, during the spring and summer, used by them as a kind of fair and pleasure garden. The place had always been to me romantic and melancholy, with the old faded wooden palace, the deserted ponds, and the desolate trees. I had never been there in the summer. I don't know with what idea I hurried there. I can only say that I had no choice but to go, and that I went as though I were still continuing my dream of the morning. Great numbers of people were hurrying there also. The road was thronged, and many of them sang as they went. Looking back now, it has entirely a dreamlike color. I stepped from the road under the trees, and was at once in a world of incredible fantasy. So far as the eye could see, there were peasants. 
the air was filled with an indescribable din. As I stepped deeper into the shelter of the leafless trees, the color seemed like fluttering banners to mingle and spread and sway before my eyes. Near to me were the tub-thumpers, now so common to us all in Petrograd, men of the Grogoff kind, stamping and shouting on their platforms, surrounded by open-mouthed soldiers and peasants. Here, too, were the quacks, such as you might see at any fair in Europe, quack dentists, quack medicine men, men with ointments for healing sores, men with pills and little bottles of bright liquid, and tricks for ruptures and broken legs and arms. A little way beyond them were the peddlers. Here were the wildest men in the world, Tartars and Lets and Indians, Asiatics with long yellow faces, and strange fellows from northern Russia. They had everything to sell, bright beads and looking-glasses and little lacquered trays, colored boxes, red and green and yellow, lace and silk and cloths of every color, purple and crimson and gold. From all these men there rose a deafening gabble. I pressed farther, although the crowd now around me was immense, and so I reached the heart of the fair. Here were enormous merry-go-rounds, and I had never seen such glittering things. They were from China, Japan, where you will. They were hung in shining, gleaming colors, covered with tinsel and silver, and, as they went tossing round, emitting from their hearts a wild, barbaric wail that may have been, in some far eastern city, the great song of all the lovers of the world, for all I know. The colors flashed and wheeled and dazzled, and the light glittered from stem to stem of the brown, silent trees. Here was the very soul of the East— Near me, a Chinaman, squatting on his haunches, was showing, before a gaping crowd, the exploits of his trained mice, who walked up and down little crimson ladders, poked their trembling noses through holes of purple silk, and ran shivering down precipices of golden embroidery. Near to him, two Japanese were catching swords in their mouths, and beyond them again a great number of Chinese were tumbling and wrestling, and near to them again some Japanese children did little tricks catching colored balls in wooden cups and turning somersaults. Around all these a vast mass of peasants pushed and struggled. Like children they watched and smiled and laughed, and always, like the flood of the dream, their numbers seemed to increase and increase. The noise was deafening, but always above the merry-go-rounds and the cheap-jacks and the shrill screams of the Japanese and the cries of the peddlers, I heard the chant of the Marseillaise carried on high through the brown, leafless park. I was bewildered and dazzled by the noise and the light. I turned desperately, pushing with my hands as one does in a dream. Then I saw Markovitch and Semyonov. I had no doubt at all that the moment had at last arrived. It was as though I had seen it all somewhere before. Semyonov was standing a little apart, leaning against a tree, watching with his sarcastic smile the movements of the crowd. Markovitch was a little way off. I could see his eyes fixed absolutely on Semyonov. He did not move, nor notice the people who jostled him, Semyonov made a movement with his hand, as though he had suddenly come to some decision. 
he walked slowly away in the direction of the palace markovitch keeping a considerable distance from him followed for a moment i was held by the crowd around me and when at last i got free semyonov had disappeared and i could just see markovitch turning the corner of the palace i ran across the grass trying to call out but i could not hear my own voice i turned the corner and instantly i was in a strange place of peace the old building with its wooden lattices and pillars stood melancholy guard over the dead pond on whose surface some fragments of ice still lay there was no sun only a heavy oppressive air all the noise was muffled as though a heavy door had swung to they were standing quite close to me semyonov had turned and faced us both i saw him smile and his lips moved a moment later i saw markovitch fling his hand forward and in the air the light on the revolver twinkled i heard no sound but i saw semyonov raise his arm as though in self-defence his face lifted strangely to the bare branches was triumphant and i heard quite clearly the words like a cry of joy and welcome at last at last he tumbled forward on his face i saw markovitch turn the revolver on himself and then heard a report sharp and deafening as though we had been in a small room i saw markovitch put his hand to his side and his mouth open as though in astonishment was suddenly filled with blood i ran to him caught him in my arms he turned on me a face full of puzzled wonder i caught the word vera and he crumpled up against my heart even as i held him i heard coming closer and closer the rough triumphant notes of the marseillaise end of part three Chapter 16 End of The Secret City by Hugh Walpole